All right, you know, oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. Well, you know, I, uh, you know how the line goes about, um, uh, what's the line about banjo on my knee? I can never, well, I come from Alabama with, that song is actually really racist. If you ever read the first, first version of it, it's been redacted and edited for us um, in the modern world. Do not go back and read the first, the first version of it. You will be shocked. Um, but anyway, this, this line, I come from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Well, my dad was playing that when I was probably like third or fourth grade, maybe younger than that. And um, he's playing it, and we're singing it, you know, and all this stuff. You know, my dad is a banjo player, and um, among other things. At the time, he was playing the fiddle. That was his, his instrument of choice. If you want to pick two instruments to teach yourself how to play them when you have small children in the house, those are the two not to teach yourself. Um, I remember hours and hours of my dad playing the violin, trying to get the pitch right, playing to, all right, now this is really going to date us, all y'all that know what I'm about to talk about. Um, The records they used to package in the back of books that were like a really flimsy vinyl, and you would put it on your record player, and it would... He's trying to match the pitch of a violin to one of those. It was exciting times. Um, I think that's the closest my mom ever got to murdering him. Um, so anyway, so he's playing a violin. So we're singing, you know, all the kids, you know, there's three of us and we're, you know, little and we're all singing. I went to Alabama with a banjo on my knee. I raised my hand. I said, wasn't that song originally written for the fiddle? And my dad looked at me and goes, yeah, that's how the lyric goes. This, you guys, this is where I get my sense of humor. You know, yeah, that's how the lyric goes. I come from Alabama with a fiddle on my knee. I immediately felt about this tall. Which, that's about how tall I was in third grade. Anyway, um, we all do this, right? We all, sometimes we just ask a question that if we had taken three seconds before we asked it, we would said, I probably shouldn't ask that question. I should probably just kind of finagle my way around it. My daughter's telling me stories about how they met uh, a friend, an acquaintance of acquaintance at the the cafeteria at school yesterday. And her roommate... um, is in class with this kid, and he introduced himself once. She doesn't remember his name. They, he keeps coming to the table and chatting with them, and none of them want to ask him what his name is. So they have no idea what this kid's name is. So naturally, Nicole and I are suggesting names. Hey, does he look like a Brandon? Does he look like a Cameron? Nicole said, he sounds like a Bill. I don't, I don't know what that means. But anyway, um, we, we go through this process, right? We don't want to ask the crazy que- the question, but sometimes we ask this nuts question. And as soon as it comes out of our mouth, we're like, oh, I'm going to grab it. We're going to take a look at the book of John chapter nine. Because the disciples ask a question they immediately regret. Now, remember in John chapter eight, opens with Jesus. They bring Jesus, the the woman supposedly taken in adultery. He challenges um, their right right to judge her. Then he's having this whole conversation about being the light of the world, and he's he's pushing everybody's buttons. And it gets to the point at the end of chapter 8 that they're actually trying to stone Jesus, and so he slips out of the temple. Now, the way that John opens chapter 9, he makes it sound like This is what happened. Jesus is being smuggled out of the temple. And then in chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him. Now, 
I personally, I don't think that this actually is like sequential. I think this is a different time. The, the Greek verb that's being translated as he, as he passed by means literally as he was walking or as he was going. So it doesn't have to be right after. But just imagine for a moment that it actually was right after. Right? So the disciples are smuggling Jesus out of the temple because they try to stone him. And as they're bustling down the stairs, they go, hey, got a question. And let's stop and talk about this guy as we're walking by. The disciples asked this question. They said, disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And although it's not in the text, I just picture Jesus doing this one. They're going, Jesus, who sinned, this boy? Really? That's the question you're going to ask. And I just, I know immediately, I'm hoping that it wasn't Peter that asked this question. So Peter could finally go, ha, ha, you asked a dumb question. Because Peter's always asking dumb questions. All right? But, um, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus takes this ridiculous question that I bet they, they wish they had not asked about halfway through his answer. And he is going to take this and he is going to make this about something other than their silly question. So join me in a word of prayer, and then we're going to get into John chapter 9. Father, once again, we come to your word. We come to look to Jesus, to see him challenging our presuppositions, our, uh, our views of how the world works, and instead inviting us into the ultimate reality of truth that he knows and, and offers to us. Lord, as we look at difficult conversations and discussions and, and Jesus doing things that blow our minds, that are difficult to believe, Lord, we ask for the faith to trust, to walk, to know, to be reborn and revived in Him. We pray all of this through His precious and holy name. Amen. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now this question doesn't come out of nowhere. There was within Judaism this belief of the, the consequences of sin that was born out of study of scripture. We, we know in the scriptures, when we read Genesis chapters 2 and 3, we, we know that um, Adam and Eve sinned and the result of their sin was death. Right? And, and, and that's pretty straightforward. And we can go through the Bible, and at certain times there are things that the nation of Israel does, and God punishes the nation for that thing. Um, the big one is their, their turn to idolatry over their history ultimately leads to their exile and captivity um, in the 6th century B.C. And, and you can read all about that in First and Second Kings. But there's, there seems to be this, this situation of sin and consequences. And I think we, we all agree that in, this does seem to be a general principle. But that's not what they're asking about. Um, and and they, they twist this a little bit because their question is, did this man sin in the womb because he was born blind? In other words, did, this, did the fetus do something wrong that caused his blindness? Or did his parents do something wrong 
Now remember, there's always there's these paternity questions that have been popping up in chapter seven and eight, you know about um, you know about uh, 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 fornication and about being married and and, and all of these things. So so maybe he, they're saying, is this child was this child born of a of a, 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 a um, an adulterous relationship? Is that why he was born blind? Or were the parents were they secretly worshiping false gods? Or or what what happened that made this man be born blind? Now, on one side of, of things, you can kind of understand their inquisitive nature. They they want to know what might cause this kind of thing to try to prevent it in their own lives. Jesus answers in verse three, it was not this man, it was not that this man sinned. Or his parents. But. And his answer comes completely out of nowhere. That the works of God. Might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day. By the way watch. And this is a whole other sermon. But he says the works of him who sent me. Singular. But who is supposed to be doing the works? We. All right, not not just him, but the disciples as well. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Okay, so he's summarizing what he'd said in the previous verses. He's talked about I am the light of the world, and then he does this extraordinarily odd thing. Having said these things, he spit on the ground. He made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now, just as an aside, this is something very interesting about the book of John. In the book of John, almost no one, there are almost no situations where somebody actually asks Jesus to do a miracle. He just does them. It's really interesting that he, he tends to just do them. He just tends to do these things. He sees a blind man. And he says, this is going to be for the, so that people can see the work of God displayed in them. He says, I'm going to do this work. But then he does this bizarre thing. Why does he spit on the ground and make mud with his saliva? I love that John had to make that very specific. He spits on the ground. He makes mud on the ground. And he anoints the man's eyes with mud. And says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, I can't prove 100% that this is what John has in mind. But I think this is what he does. Remember, the reason they ask the question is because sin has consequences. Adam and Eve sin. As a result, death enters the world. Jesus has been talking in the book of John a lot about the idea of water of life. He talks about it to Nicodemus, being born of the water and of the spirit. He talks to about water with the, the woman uh, at the well in John chapter 4. He's been talking a lot about water. He talks a lot about spirit. Well, guess what makes spit? Water and breath, spirit. Now, you can make a lot of spit in your mouth, but if you're going to spit it on the ground, you've got to... All right? All right? And Jesus combines water and breath from his mouth, and he does it to what? The ground. Genesis chapter 2. God, God molds man from the dust of the ground, and he breathes into him the breath of life. 
God actively bringing life to the dust. And then that dust, which is alive, went and sinned, and their eyes were opened in Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 2, their eyes were opened that they might see. And what's the first thing they see? They see their nakedness. They see their brokenness. They see that there's something wrong with the world. And here is John who loves the book of Genesis. John chapter 1 is all based on Genesis chapter 1. He has God the Son, water and breath on the dust of the earth to make mud, to bring true sight. Now just look at the process that happens. Jesus mingles his water, his spirit with the earth that man was made of. Then he says to this man, go wash. So here's this miraculous thing that looks incredibly odd. Jesus makes the mud with his hands. He presses it into the eyes of this guy. And then he says, go wash that out of your eyes. Go to the pool of Siloam. So that kind of gives us a hint to where Jesus is. He's on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. The pool of Siloam um, is down on the down below the temple walls. Um, it was actually created as a reservoir in the sixth, seventh century to um, in case of sieges. It's inside the the walls of the city. Um, he says, "You go down to the pool of Siloam and you wash." And what does the man do? So he went. And he washed, and he came back seeing. Look at the inversion of Genesis. God creates a man, breathes into him breath of life, creates him from the dust. Man goes and sins. His eyes are opened, and he sees his own sinfulness. He disobeys. He eats the food, eats the fruit, and sees his sinfulness. Now God takes a man who is broken. Jesus, God the Son, makes mud. He spits on the dirt. He puts it on his eyes. He says, instead of disobeying, obey. The man obeys, he goes, and he sees. Then in verse 8, Jesus just steps out of the story. Again. Again, this is the second time he's done something crazy like this and then just walked off. Jesus, in verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now, if anything says how little attention people pay to beggars and their appearance, it's this verse. It's not like Jesus made him more handsome. I mean, the only thing the thing guy did was wash mud off of his face. He should be recognizable. Some said it's he. Others said no, but it, it, he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. This is also an extraordinary situation with human beings who you can sit there and say the most obvious thing in the world and they say no. And they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. I went and I received my sight. And then they ask this crazy, I mean, again, a question that comes out of their mouths. And as soon as it came out of their mouths, they should have, they should have realized how dumb it was. Where is he? Well, he was blind when he went to the pool. 
He knows that the guy was called Jesus because people said to him, you know, they're calling his name, Jesus, you know, Yeshua. So, so he, knows, he knows there was a guy and his name was Jesus and he put mud on his, face, his eyes. I don't know where he was. I walked down to the pool. You're lucky I found my way back. I said, where is he? He says, I don't know. So they brought the Pharisees. They brought him to the Pharisees. They come on, let's go. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So that's a violation of the, the law. He, he can't do work. And spitting, the rabbis believed that spitting was work. You're not allowed to spit on the Sabbath day. Okay, all righty then. Um, so Pharisee, and so they bring him to him and said, now it was a Sabbath day, verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Uh, okay. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. He goes, what do you want from me? I was blind. He put mud on my eyes. I know it doesn't make any sense. I washed it off and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's what they got out of this. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Now, notice there is a conversation going on between and among the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are a group of people who are, they're, they're convinced they have to get the proper interpretation of the law. But this is very, very common in Pharisaical Judaism. Um, these kind of conversations eventually became uh, rabbinical Judaism, the, the, the Talmud, the, the Midrash, the, the, all the conversations. They have these conversations. One guy says this, another guy says this. They have a conversation about it. Um, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Signs. So they're like, well, look, if, if, how, can somebody, how can somebody break the Sabbath, that's a sin, and yet heal something that we believe is the consequence of sin? That doesn't make any sense. It, it's illogical. It's, it's as nonsensical um, as a used car salesman saying that this is the lowest price I can give you, and it actually being the lowest price that you could give me. It just doesn't work. And so there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? What a novel idea to ask him what he thought. And he says, he's a prophet. Well, that was a wrong thing to say to them. It was a wrong thing to say to them. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind. Now, this seems like an inconvenient truth. Like, how do you suddenly go, oh, well, obviously he wasn't blind. His neighbors, his friends, everybody knows that he was a, a blind man. He was a beggar. So now their, their answer is not, well, we should find Jesus and ask him some questions about how he made the, guy, the blind guy see. Their answer is, well, clearly you were never blind in the first place. They called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And these people deserve the Parent of the Year award. Verse 19. And ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we, uh, do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. I'm not responsible for what my kid says or how he gets healed. That's not my job. 
His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed. Now, this is probably the most important verse in this chapter. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, understand what that meant. Today, in American society, if you are uh, put out of a group, it's not a big deal. You just go find another group. If, if you, you get, you know, for some reason a church shuts down, you just go find another church. Uh, your, your, job, your job gets downsized, you should be able to go find another job. But in their society, to be put out of the synagogue was to be given a black mark. They, they would not be able to work. Their customers would stop buying whatever it was they were selling. Um, they would lose everything. They would be treated as Gentiles. And that's why they said, he's of age, ask him. Now, this could mean one of two things. It could mean that this man was in his 30s, which seems unlikely. It could also mean that he was over the age of 13 or 14 and considered a a bar mitzvah, a son of the law, son of the commandments. That's Aramaic, by the way. When you have a Jewish friend who says, oh, my son is going to have a bar mitzvah, or my daughter is going to have a bat mitzvah. Bar means son, bat means daughter. Mitzvah means commandments. Son or daughter of the commandments. That's why they said he is of age. So this could be a teenager. Very much could be a teenager. For a second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, they give him a chance. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So why don't you just say that God healed you and then you'll be all set. You could just leave this guy out of the equation altogether. Now, I get what they're saying. They're they're doing an end around. They're trying to find a reasonable way to keep him in the synagogue. Keep the, they seem to be trying to think. They're thinking about these people. But they're basically saying to them, ignore the fact that some dude made mud, stuck it on your eye, sent you down to the pool, and then you could see. Just say God did it, and everything will be great. Just make it a generic religious statement. And he answered... Whether he's a sinner, I don't know, because, by the way, I was blind. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? This is the third time. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they reviled him. They started to mock him. They started to ridicule him. They started to attack him. And they said, you're his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus talked about being a follower of Moses. Now, they were, they were not the children of Abraham or the children of the law. They were the children of, of Satan. They were children of the accuser. So they're saying, we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. Remember, this is a blind guy. He was a beggar about five minutes ago. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He basically says to him, all right, you guys want to say this guy is a sinner that is in violation of the law of Moses. And yet how could he possibly have healed me if that were true? And they answered him, well, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? Where do they believe his blindness comes from? That he was born a sinner. If he's blind and he was born a sinner and Jesus must be a sinner because he's violating the Sabbath and they're able in their own conscience to judge both of those people, what do they believe is true about themselves? We're not sinners. This guy who healed you, he's a sinner. You must be a sinner because you were born blind, but we're the righteous. We're the good. We're the better than you. We're not sinners. We have a book of rules and a bag of tools. We know how to stay above board with God in absolutely everything. So you are out. Verse 34. They cast him out. Verse 35, and Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? I just, I love this conversation. I love this moment about Jesus. This is one of the coolest things about Jesus is he keeps tabs on the people he heals. This is wild to me. Like, like, think about it. If you're Jesus, you're in the temple, you're, you're preaching, there's all these people around, you're doing all this stuff. And yet one, the, when, when the situation happens with the, the man at the pool of, of Bethesda and they start attacking him, Jesus goes and finds him. He tracks him down and he has a conversation with him. Now this guy gets cast out of the synagogue, out of the assembly of the Pharisees. All right, he gets cast out and Jesus hears about it and Jesus goes and finds him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, the blind man answered, he said, And who is he? Kyrie, sir, that I may believe in him. Jesus says to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I, I, I just think about this. Until this moment, this guy had not seen Jesus. You realize that? Jesus walks up to him. And this guy, other than the tone of Jesus' voice, has no idea who this person is walking to him because he's never seen him. Jesus healed him, sent him to the pool, and Jesus was gone. Now Jesus says, do you see me? Do you see me? Do you know who I am? And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Literally, he, he bowed before him. That's what it means to worship. Worship means to bow before. And some of the Pharisees near him heard uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, these guys are really good at asking stupid questions. Are we also blind? If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you were ignorant, if you were ignorant of the law, I could say that you were just, you were just doing the best you could. I, I, I could say that, well, you just didn't understand. But you claim to be able to see. You claim to be righteous. You claim to know the difference between sin and righteousness. You claim to know. And yet when you were confronted with the glory of God revealed in the healing of a man who was born blind, the only thing that you could see was sin. You could not see me. You could not see righteousness. So yes, you are blind because that's all you see you are guilty because the standard by which you measure the world is your own righteousness rather than the righteousness of god your guilt remains this by the way is the first time jesus actually pronounces a judgment remember all the way back in chapter three he said i came not to condemn the world the world is condemned already The condemnation that Jesus delivers is to a group of people so blind they are unable to see their own sin nature and it takes being standing against the healing of a man and calling him a sinner for daring to be healed by God. How dare he claim that God did something awesome in his life? How dare he conjecture that maybe someone capable of of restoring sight might be sent from God? How dare that be suggested? We have to throw them out of the synagogue. We have to eliminate any voice that might not align with our version of the truth. Now Jesus is going to talk to them in chapter 10, and we're going to talk about that next week. But I want you to focus on what is happening with this blind man. Because I think that this is actually, um, and, and I steal this from my friend Mike Card, who says that this is the central narrative of the Gospel of John. I happen to actually think he's right. He's on to something. This is the moment where the world must decide. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Or is he who we decide he is going to be. It is the acts of Christ, are they, are they worth following? Is it worth accepting him as Lord and Messiah and the Son of Man and the Son of God? Or will we, will we continue to perpetuate our narrative, our story? Will we continue to try to control the narrative no matter how strong the evidence is to the contrary. We have zero experience with that in America today, right? People trying to control the narrative, no matter how strong the evidence is. We never see that happen. We never see that happen in our society. People are doing it all the time. And it's amazing to see how how easy it is to control a narrative if you simply dismiss anything that disagrees with your narrative. 
I confronted this. I dealt with this in my, in my, my doctoral dissertation. How dare I have the audacity to believe that the authors of the Bible knew what they were talking about when they described something as supernatural. And, and you, can actually, you can actually find it in books about the Bible, very straightforward, that the supernatural cannot be reported as historical. You, you must set that aside. You must assume that it is not true because how on earth could there possibly be supernatural things in history? How do you ever call yourself a Christian and reject the supernatural? Your entire faith is founded on a dude from Galilee dying and coming back to life. How could you possibly say the supernatural in the Bible must be false and still call yourself a Christian? You cannot. But here's the reality with this guy. And, and here's kind of the, the big idea I want you to grab. It was not because he was touched by Jesus that he was rejected. It was because he refused to credit anyone but Jesus for what Jesus had done. That's why the Jews rejected him. The world is perfectly happy. The, the world system, the world people, whatever you want. The world is perfectly happy for you to have your faith as long as you don't credit it with any of the good that might happen to your life. They are perfectly happy for you to call yourself a Christian as long as you do not in any way, shape, or form project any kind of Christian authority on your own life. It is only when you say, and I'm oversimplifying, the Bible says it so I believe it, that people start to get all antsy with you. I, I mean, people, people love to hang out with me until they find out what I do for a living. Like, like, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm involved with national martial arts things. I'm a board member. I do all this stuff. I tr used to travel a lot. I don't travel as much. Um, I used to teach. Everybody was like, why are you, you know, you, you're, you're, you know, this sounds pompous. I don't want to make it sound, I hate it when I do that. Um, I was like, well, you're a really good teacher. Why are you a good teacher? I was like, because I teach 52 weeks of the year. And I teach easily the hardest to teach subject in the world. No offense to physics and, and all those things, but trying to teach the Bible, a 2,000-year-old plus book, to a group of people who have heard it a thousand times before, that's a challenge. And, and, and they, oh, you know, and then I say, well, I'm a, pa I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, what's that? I said, well, I'm a Baptist minister. They go, oh, okay. All righty then. So, how about the weather? <laughs> Want to talk about anything bizarre here? The best part is that usually they're living in a house that I rented. That makes it even better. Like, oh, Eric rented this house. There's like 15 people living there. And I, I walk in, and then they find out I'm a minister. And suddenly, they're looking for hotel rooms. Um, you know, the, the people, people, they don't reject you. They're not going to reject the, the, what is happening in your life. But they're going to have a problem when you credit it to the one who actually did it. And, and that's just a reality of life. And, and look, it is not, I, I want to be very clear, it is not because people hate you. 
It's not even because of hatred. I, don't, I really don't believe it is. It is just because Jesus doesn't fit in our very self-centered, self-righteous version of the world. The idea that, that um, God might take on flesh, dwell among us, die, be raised again, ascended to heaven, and that he might have power and authority over the affairs of mankind today, forget the future, today, people don't want that. They want a convenient Jesus, not a sovereign Jesus. If Jesus can fit in their box, that's fine, that's grandy, that's, that's dandy. A nice little bobblehead Jesus. I think I've told this story. Uh, Dan Kimball, one of the pastors I used to follow, kind of weird guy. He's a rockabilly guy, rolled up pants, funny, weird 1950s hairdo. Um, and he collects Jesus memorabilia. He has a bobblehead Jesus. Um, but his, his, his favorite is an Ask Me Jesus, which he got at a store in a mall somewhere along. It's a pink Jesus, you know, like a Jesus from the Catholic Church. But it has the little thing from the Magic 8-Ball. And, and you shake it. And you, you ask it a question, and it has all these answers that you think would come from like a hippie Jesus, right? You shake your hand, it's like, it's like uh, should I go to the store? I'll ask my dad. Um, she, you guys think about that for a second. Um, shake, <laughs> you shake it, shake it again, it's like, oh, Lucy is making fun of me, what should I do? And it says, smite, right? And like, like there's... And he has all this memorabilia and things because people like a convenient ask me Jesus. A Jesus who when, when when we need him to just kind of intervene enough for us to get along with our lives, that's a Jesus we don't mind. But the Jesus who does such extraordinary things in our lives that we can't back down from saying he did it. Well, well, by Jesus, you mean, you know, kind of this nebulous God idea, right? I mean, like God did, we, we're okay with God did this, all right? We're okay, because everybody's got to, I don't care about that, Siri. Um, the, the uh, uh, you know, we, we don't care, it's because I shook my wrist too long. She, she likes now, anytime I shake my wrist, she's like, what do you need? Um, and that wouldn't be a problem if she gave me the right answers. Um, but th- this, this whole this whole God thing, right? Because God, that's just, a, that's just a general term for some kind of supernatural being. I mean, in Greek it was theos, and we, we got goat from German, and we, we dropped one T, and we, we say it as God, and, 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 and they're okay with God as long as you don't specify. When you start thinking that God might be specific, that he might not just do abstract things, but he might do real things, that he might actually work miracles in our lives, that he might actually restore brokenness in our marriages, that he, he might actually redeem sinners, that he might actually take somebody who is lost and, and wandering and he might give them purpose and, and meaning in their lives, that, that God might, God's not just interested in kind of your general well-being, but your actual holiness. People don't want to hear that. They don't want a God who might require you to actually check with him before you make a decision. They only want a God who can clean up your mess if you blew it. Jesus answers the question of sin. This is what I love about Jesus. He answers the question about sin. It's one of the things. By illuminating the reality of sin so that everybody can see that he's the answer to sin. 
rather than getting into all the theological rabbinical arguments about sin, he just demonstrates just how prevalent it is. And this is crazy. He provokes them to do this. He actually intentionally provokes this response by the way that he does this healing, by the question that's being asked. Jesus provokes them, these these unrighteous people, to do what unrighteous people do so that their unrighteousness could be revealed. Now, this is not, by the way, a call for you to go around poking the bear. Get sinner. I'm going to get you to show you're a sinner by just pushing you until you cuss me out. And that way, that way I know you're a sinner. That's not, but Jesus is illustrating this point. They rejected this man not because he was healed, but because Jesus did it. And he refused to back down from that confession. That, by the way, is what it means to confess. Everybody reads about a confession of faith. What is a confession of faith? A confession is, this is Jesus, and I can't answer any other way. Well, what about this? Jesus. Well, well, maybe it was, maybe it was this. You know, maybe, maybe what you're crediting with Jesus is just a mere coincidence Maybe his eyes were in the process of healing and Jesus put mud on it and the mud just was at the same time. And so it's just coincidence. Yet don't you get that response from people? You give credit to Jesus for something? They're like, well, that would have happened anyway. Well, there's nothing supernatural about that. Have you ever been in a, 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 I, I, and I have never really dealt with this, but people tell you about a, a like a, a car accident or something, and they're like, they're like, we were dead, it was going to happen, and yet somehow we were saved, and I just got to credit God, I, you know, he was, and they're like, well, I mean, come on, how do you know? I'm like, well, I mean, eighteen wheeler and me and. You know, my dad, my dad tells this story about coming home from Virginia. I'll end with this story. And my mom was driving. Um, my dad doesn't like to let other people drive for this reason. They're coming home from Lynchburg. My dad was in college. He was tired. He's trying to sleep. There are two babies in the back. One of them is me. Um, and so obviously this is not, I here in the second person. Um, I wasn't keeping track of this at three months old. But um, they were driving. My dad has this thing. If you guys didn't already know, my dad is weird. Or he plays the banjo, all those things. And he loves Corvairs. Do you guys know what a Corvair is? All right, anybody over the age of 60 should know what a Corvair is. The one that Ralph Nader had taken off the road, right? Had a gas tank, used to catch on fire. My dad loved that car. Um, he had a couple of them. So he has this Corvair, and they're driving home from to Pennsylvania from Virginia. It's the middle of the night. My mom is driving, and um, my dad wakes up and says, where are we? My mother had drifted underneath a uh, 18-wheeler. She had fallen asleep um, to, when it was hauling a high load like logs or something, and she had drifted the car underneath, and somehow asleep was keeping pace with that 18-wheeler. That was because God really wanted me to be your pastor. <laughs> right? And he spared me from my mother. <laughs> Delete that from the stream. 
She might watch it. No. And, I, and I, I make light of it, but the reality is when you look at something like that and you give credit to God, what do people do? I mean, what's their response? They, oh, you know, that. come on now. Don't be silly. But a confession of Christ is to say it's Jesus and it's only Jesus. You go, well, things aren't as good as I wish they were. Yeah, but they're not as bad as they could be. You say, well, well, I'm struggling with this. You'd be struggling a lot more without him. You, you, we, we go through this thing and we always want to look at the 10% God's not doing instead of the 90% that he is doing and say, well, if you would just do that, I would be more faithful. No, just be faithful in a little and God will give you much. I really, really honestly believe that this guy... Um, stayed in the church until his dying day. We don't know, but John seems to, anytime John includes somebody, anytime the gospel writers include somebody who makes a confession of faith, it seems to be that they stayed in the church. Can you imagine this guy telling this story years down the road to all the kids, right? He's like the youth leader, right? There's all a bunch of kids gathered around. He's like, they're like, okay, tell us the story about Jesus. Well, there was this one time I was born blind. And then Jesus spit on the ground, you know, and if he's teaching a group of teenagers, what are they all going to do? <laughs> all right. And he put mud on my eyes. And I was thrown out of the synagogue. But you know what I found? I found that in my confession of Christ, I found so much more than I ever knew I didn't have. What an extraordinary story of Jesus being Jesus and somebody seeing it and just being unable to do anything but praise and worship him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, you are the one who heals our blindness, gives us new life, transforms our walk, our way, our world. It's so easy for us to credit anyone but you, and yet you are the reason we are here. You are the sustainer of the universe. You hold all things together. You are the giver of life. You are the the judge of righteousness. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Help us to hold the confession true. No matter what it means. No matter what rejection, no matter what response may come. That we might always be your people. Touched by you. Transformed by you. Given new life by you. We pray this all by your Holy Spirit which you sent to the church and propels us forward. We pray it in the name of our Father who alone is God um, and sovereign in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.